Okay, we're going to continue our discussion of mechanical waves. And today we'll introduce sound. Sound is a mechanical wave. Um, so that kind of gets into chapter 16 in our textbook, which is the last chapter we're going to cover. So if you're keeping track, um, next week we'll cover chapter 16. We'll have our last midterm on December 8th, which is the following Monday. Okay, then we'll have review that Wednesday. That's our last class. And then the final exam. Um, I've gotten a lot of questions. People uh, were recalling something I said very early in the semester, actually the first day when I handed out the green sheet. Um, and it has a little bit of meaning now, is how the, the final exam affects your grade. The final exam can only improve your grade. So once you've had your four midterms and the last homework has been complete, you will have a grade that you can look up online. Um, so it's available in the uh, class webpage. How many people have used the class website to check their grade? Okay, so, um, so that'll be updated with your last midterm and then the final homework score um, when I get the last midterm graded. You'll be able to view that grade by the last day of class. Um, you can't do any worse than that. Okay, so if you don't show up and don't take the midterm, that's the grade you'll get. If you show up, take the midterm, and you score better on the midterm than you scored on any of your midterms, okay. I'll replace your midterm score with the higher final score. All right, so if you scored like 60% on all of your midterms and you get an 80% on the final, you're probably going to get a B in the class because you'll get an 80 for every single one of the midterms. Okay, so it will replace all midterm scores that are lower than the final. Chris? No, no, no. It will replace, it, it can in theory replace all of your midterm scores. Doesn't matter. And, and it will replace any midterm scores that are lower than the final exam okay. score. And okay. if I want to find the final exam, you can create the two lowest, the highest, two highest. Well, the, the highest ones will stay. Okay, the highest right. ones will stay. Okay. So the way I see it is you've, I'm giving you two chances to prove you know the material. One is on the midterms, right, and one is on the final. So I'll take whichever one you score better on. Okay? So that doesn't include homework, right? Homework is its own thing. That homework score is not going to get replaced by your, your final exam score. So any questions about that? Chris? Right, so the last midterm is the last week of class. We'll review after that. There is no new material after the last midterm. Yeah, I'll distribute the material pretty evenly so that you should expect there's 16 chapters. We've covered them all. You should expect that material from all of them will appear on the final. Um, some of it will appear sort of mixed together. We've done problems on the board where, like, we poke a hole in the bottom of a tank of water. Right. You have to use some fluid stuff from chapter 13 to figure out how fast the fluid will come out. You have to use stuff from chapter 3 to figure out where it will land. So there may be things where they're all mixed together, but all the concepts will be there. Yeah? Yeah. You can get one, one full sheet of paper. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Okay, so I'll, make, uh, I'll go over that in more detail on the, the last day of class when we review. At that point, I'll actually have made up the midterm and can tell you some more. Um, well, I can tell you. I'll, I'll discuss it more then. Okay, so uh, let's see. We're going to talk about sounds today. So 
one of the questions I have for you is what's the difference between sound or musical sound and noise? Okay. Which one has the pattern and which ones are in them? The musical sound has patterns. Anyone have any sense of what that pattern is or like what, how we can describe that? Yeah. So there's certain frequency intervals. Um, okay, so 440 hertz is, what is 440 hertz? So it's middle C. Okay, so uh, middle C on a piano sounds different than middle C on a guitar, right? They're both um, strings oscillating at 440 hertz. Why do they sound different? Christopher? So what, what changes? I mean, if something's oscillating at 440 hertz, you'd expect it's going to shake your eardrum at 440 hertz. Why does it matter whether it's copper or steel or wood? Or... Okay, that, that does affect it, um, but um, the way it affects it is by how, that, how the higher harmonics uh, are distributed. So let's talk about that just a little bit. Um, we're talking about this just because it's sort of how we relate to sound, um, not so much because uh, we're going to discuss or we're interested in the physics of the, uh, the ear. Um, musical sound is composed of various frequencies that are integer multiples of some fundamental frequency. So we call those harmonics. <coughs> so if we hear a tone, um, we can often describe that tone as being at a certain frequency, but usually there's higher harmonics of that frequency that we also hear. And a good example of the difference between those is the difference between a, a middle C on a piano and the same middle C being played by a cheap computer, or like the computer game from the 1980s, for instance. Okay, one sounds very synthetic, one sounds very rich and detailed. Um, so that sort of describes some of the differences between musical sounds. Noise is sound that has components at all frequencies. So the frequency components of noise are not all integer multiples of some fundamental. So I have a spectrum analyzer here, software spectrum analyzer. Right now this is showing two things. Um, on top is uh, the sound measured in millivolts. So that's the sound is a pressure wave that gets converted into a voltage that my computer reads. And it's plotting the uh, amplitude of that as a function of time. So this is what we call a waveform. And uh, if I attempt to whistle, which I'm not very good at, we should see a sinusoidal pattern. So that's basically a single frequency, and that's what we see up here. So if you wanted to plot how much energy there is in the different frequencies, you do a mathematical transformation called the Fourier transform. And without describing any of the details of that, um, let me just say that this plot down here is the, uh, is the sound spectrum. It's the amplitude, not as a function of time, but as a function of <coughs> frequency. So this is measuring for some length of time and figuring out how much energy there is in the different frequency components. So let me whistle again. And up here we saw this sine wave. 
down here, what we should see is a peak at a particular frequency. Actually, it's down here. It's pretty hard to see. Um, I have this, this rod. This is aluminum. And uh, when I bang it against the floor, it's going to rattle. And you should be able to hear that and see the frequency. So there are a couple of frequency components that are clearly visible here. Um, and if you look carefully, you may be able to figure out what, how those are related. They're integer multiples of some common frequency. Okay, so we can play around with this a little bit. Um, one thing you notice is I'm holding this bar in the middle. Right? And so and it rings pretty well when I do that. What happens when I grab it up here, though? Yeah, I damp it. Why does it get damped when I hold it up here, but not when I hold it down here? Let me try. Let me try. Let's see if it sounds any different if I hold it up here and bang it. Still hear it right now? Why does it matter where I hold it? Wait just a second. What's the stick doing when I bang it? Vibrates. Okay. So vibrates means it's oscillating. When something oscillates, it produces a wave. That wave's going to travel down to the end. At the end, we have what we call, we consider an open end. We saw this last time, we called this a free end. If this were a string, the end of the string was free, so that the sound reflects off of that, or the vibrations reflect off of that. So they reflect back and forth, we get standing waves. Standing waves of certain frequencies will resonate. It means the waves, as they travel down and come back, when they return, they add up in phase with the waves that are propagating. They produce larger and larger amplitude sounds that is what we end up hearing. If the waves that are not of the right frequency, when they go around and come back, they don't add up in phase, they cancel each other out, and they, they don't resonate. So there's certain frequencies or wavelengths that will resonate. And when we have that, we said we can describe a standing wave pattern. So for a string with open ends, is there a node or an anti-node at the ends? So a node is a point where the, the, the uh, displacement is zero. So if the ends of the string are free to move up and down, for example, then there's not going to be a node. There'd be a node if we clamp it in place. If we allow it to be free, and is there a node or an antinode? Antinode. Antinode. Okay. There's an antinode. And so what about this bar? Um, as the bar vibrates at the end, is it constrained to be at one location? Or is it free to vibrate up and down? It's free. So it's going to be an antinode. So let me 
embrace these, uh, these little poles that were holding a fictitious string. Let's call this my bar. It has an antinode at either end. So the standing waves that can be supported on this all have antinodes on the ends. So the fundamental mode looks like this. If I want, I can draw draw what the maximum and minimum positions of that bar would look like, there's an antinode at either end, and there's necessarily a node right in the middle. Right, so that means the center of this stick is not vibrating. So with that, what do you think happens when I put my hand on the stick at that point? Let me ask it this way. What happens if I put my hand over here and touch the end that's got an antinode? What am I doing? I'm damping out the motion, right? I'm, I'm, that vibration is getting transferred into my hand and it's losing its energy. If I hold it right here, it's not vibrating. So no energy gets transferred to my hand. So it can ring, and it can ring for a long time because the standing wave isn't transferring energy to me. It's only transferring its energy into sound that you hear. If I hold it at the end, nothing. If I hold it in the middle, and I grab the end, nothing. Okay, so that's the fundamental. Um, that's not the only waveform that can be supported. Right? Any standing wave that has an antinode at either end would be excited when I bang this on the ground. So let's consider another standing wave. Here's one that has an antinode at both ends. As I drew it, it's got one more node. So this is the if this is the fundamental. This one down here is the second harmonic. So let's see if we can see that. First of all, when I, when I bang this on the, on the ground, when we look at the, the plot, the lowest spike on this spectrum should be the lowest frequency in the fundamental mode that's generated. Let's look for evidence of the second harmonic. It should be at twice that, or about 2.6. You see it? No, you don't. You do see the third harmonic over here at whatever, 3.9, okay? Why is there not, nothing at 2.6? second harmonic, uh, this is the second harmonic, it can support that. But if I put my finger here, then any 
there should be an antinode in the center, and my finger is going to damp out that motion. It's going to destroy the second harmonic, take all the energy away. There can still be vibrations in this fundamental mode, but not in the second harmonic. The third harmonic, again, has to have an antinode at either side. And so now, third harmonic means there's going to be three zero crossings. should be able to vibrate? Yes, it is. And so let's see if we see that. That should be at, um, at 1.3, 2.6, 3 uh, kilohertz. You see it? Yeah. And in fact, you may notice that all the odd, see all the odd harmonics. The odd harmonics are the ones that are going to have, in this case, a node in the middle. Hence, holding it in the middle is not going to damp out those modes of vibration. All the even harmonics get damped out by the fact that I'm holding it in the middle. So just consider these first three harmonics. What happens if I hold this up here near the top at this point? What happens to the fundamental and the second harmonic and the third harmonic? Which of those are going to be, which of those are going to resonate? Just the third, right? Not the fundamental, not the second, just the third. That is a higher frequency than the fundamental. As a result, we hear a higher pitch. Right? And that high pitch sound, was there when I held it down here. We just didn't notice because um, this fundamental is what we perceive the sound to be. There's the fundamental and the third harmonic, and the fifth and the seventh and the ninth. And all those things we interpret as being a sound at a particular frequency with certain depth. That depth is the uh, additional harmonics that contribute. If my computer, um, I told the computer to generate a tone at whatever frequency this is, it would not have any depth to it. It would just be a very single frequency tone. It would sound like a computer rather than a musical instrument. Okay, so uh, these, this is kind of fun to play around with. I'll leave it out after class. You can try to guess where nodal points will be and hold the, the thing there and bang it. And of course, there are some places Sort of every place that we hold it, we get a different pitch. And you can play around and try to figure out how to predict what frequencies you'll hear. OK, so we just saw this. Uh, this was a spectrum for music with these regularly spaced intervals and what we consider noise or static, for example, basically has all frequency components to it. Yes? Um, 
a reasonable length of aluminum will give me frequencies, based on the speed of sound in the aluminum, gives me frequencies that match well with human hearing. That and this was sitting around in one of the, one of the offices that I poked my head into. Um, if we did it with something that had a much lower speed of sound, um, so let's say instead of aluminum, this was like a tube of, I don't know, acrylic. Speed of sound in acrylic is much lower than in aluminum. Um, how would that affect the frequencies that we hear? Lower pitch. Yeah, lower pitch. How would it affect the wavelengths produced, or the, the wavelength inside of the uh, stick? The wavelength is, is determined by the length of the stick. If I have two equal length sticks, different materials, the wavelengths inside the stick would be the same, but when that sound couples out into air, um, it's the frequency of vibration of the aluminum would be higher. Remember? Wavelength times frequency is velocity. So a higher velocity for a given wavelength produces a higher frequency of oscillation. Okay, so you can play around with that. You can also find um, lots of things just sitting around. You can, you can do this with a golf club, a baseball, bat. Um, you can play around with that at home as well. Okay, so what we're actually hearing is the sound transmitting through the air. So there's vibrations in the aluminum stick, but all that does is end up vibrating the air. That transmits the sound to us. So that sound wave is a pressure wave in the air. You can imagine molecules of air as the surface vibrates back and forth. It compresses and then stretches out this, uh, the air here. It stretches it out. We call that rarefying it or decompressing it. So if you plotted the pressure the function of position, you had a, an oscillating source, a particular frequency, you'd see some waveform produced. And this is a variation of pressure around some average pressure. So in most cases, atmospheric pressure. Uh, if you watch science fiction movies, see spaceships, spacecraft in space, and they, uh, they shoot their phasers with guns, and you hear sounds, right? And they fire their rockets, you hear sounds. Would you actually experience that? Why not? There's no air, right? There's no air to carry the sound wave. So we can uh, go into space to test this out. But I brought a little bell jar that we can evacuate, and uh, we'll do this. We'll do this experiment a couple times. I have a pump here that can pump the air out of this bell jar, and I have a little alarm, just a buzzer that I can put in the bell jar, and we can listen for it as I pump the air out. So pretty loud. Unfortunately, the bell jar itself is, this is about half inch thick glass. Um, it, the sound doesn't transmit through this very well. So even when there's air inside of this, it's going to be hard to hear. But let's first let's do the experiment where I put this in. Can you still hear it? OK, now let me pump the air out.
Okay, so it's hard to hear the siren over the sound of the uh, pump, but what I'll do is once it's pumped out, I'll turn the pump off, and then I'll let the air back in. Let's see if we notice a change from when it's under vacuum to when it's, uh, when it's at air pressure. So it's under vacuum. I can pick this up because there's low air pressure inside, there's atmospheric pressure underneath, and so when I lift this up, atmospheric pressure pushes that up. Can you hear it? I can hear it a little bit. Let's let the air back in. Louder? Okay. So. Thought I nearly lost the pin that makes it stop making noise. Um, why can we still hear it when we pumped out the air? The thing in the bottom. Um, yeah, the floor. It's, it, I said it needed some material for the sound to propagate through, and normally that would be air. But this was actually sitting on the ground. Right? So it's not only shaking the air, but it's shaking the table. The whole table was vibrating. Right? And so that may have been what we heard. So I can try to hang this up so that that's not an issue. Let's try this again. Can you hear it? It's quieter. Not as much so. Um, the air back in again and see if the sound increases. Louder? Okay, so the, a couple things. The air is not completely evacuated. There's still some residual amount of air. Um, and then it can also vibrate through the, through the strain. So my last little experiment here, I'm a little, I haven't actually done this experiment yet. I tried to do it before class and I had a couple technical glitches. But uh, I have a microphone. Let's put the microphone in the jar. I imagine when I first do that, we're going to hear very, very loud uh, sirens. That's going to kind of suck. But um, then, then we'll evacuate it. We'll see what happens.
still a little bit of sound. Um, it means there's still air in there, or there's still some mechanism for the sound to couple. So, for instance, I see that the, the buzzer is actually touching the cord to the microphone. So it could actually be shaking the cord, or there could just be the residual air. noticeably quieter with the uh, air evacuated. And if we had been able to set up a perfect vacuum and, and suspend this in a way that it couldn't couple any energy to the bell or to the microphone, uh, we should have heard it completely quiet. Right, so sound needs a material to propagate through. Normally air is the, is the material. Um, it propagates through any rigid material or any, any, any material that has, a, has uh, some density. So sound will propagate through water. When you're underwater, that's how you're going to hear. Um, it will propagate through metal. So if you put your ear up to a railroad track, um, you may be able to hear the sound of the train coming much sooner than you can hear it through the air. So the sound propagates faster through the, the more dense metal. Okay, so the velocity of sound um, is a function of the density of the material propagating through. Row, and it's a, it's also a function of the compressibility of the material, the stiffness. That's this this letter Y. That's um, that comes from chapter eleven. And we, I don't think we I don't know whether we got to that or not because I wasn't here for that, but it was not on my agenda of things to cover. So um, this this equation, all I want you to take out of this is the speed of sound depends on how dense the material is and how stiff it is. So we're not actually going to do anything uh, quantitative with that expression. But I can point out that if you evaluate this for air, you get a velocity of about 344 meters per second at room temperature. You're going to measure that in the last lab next week. Any uh, If you use something like helium instead, helium it's a gas, just like air, so you'd expect it has about the same compressibility, the same stiffness. Um, but it's is it more dense or less dense? Less dense. It's significantly less dense. So what does that do to the velocity? Lower density. Yeah. Higher velocity. So higher velocity means, uh, you put in the numbers, you get about 1,000 meters per second. Yes? Yes. If you suck up helium, you end up with a higher voice. If you suck up a deeper, or a more dense gas than air, you get a much deeper voice. Um, if you suck up helium, you have fun singing songs and hearing your voice sound funny, and then you go back to normal. Um, you have to be a little careful, though, if you suck up some heavier gas. What happens to that heavier gas? It just sits there in your lungs. Right? It's not that different than sucking up water. It's heavier, so in order to drain it out of your lungs, you need to turn yourself upside down. So uh, when I was taking the equivalent of this course when I did my undergraduate, I had a professor who demonstrated this. He had a 
a balloon filled with xenon. And it was a pretty cool demonstration. It involved two things that I'm uncomfortable with. One is singing in front of people. Um, and that was his demonstration of the sound. The other one is, is uh, hanging upside down in front of people to drain his, his, uh, his lungs afterwards. If he hadn't done that, he wouldn't have been able to take in any new air. Someday, I hope to, to find someone willing to do that demonstration for me. Um, just for reference, the velocity of sound in water is about 1,400 meters per second. So that's even higher than in helium. So that would suggest that if you breathe it in water, you might even have a higher pitch voice. But again, don't suggest you try that. Um, okay, so let's look at that. If you have an instrument, that instrument may be your trachea that the air from your lungs comes out of. And it's constructed so that a certain wavelength resonates in the body of the instrument. The fundamental wavelength is one meter long. So for example, you can have a pipe closed at one end, open at the other end, and that other end might be your mouth. Yeah, I had to go a long way with this guy before you could probably tell me that was a trachea. Um, okay, so if it's closed at one end and open at one end, what are the uh, conditions for where the node and anti-node are? There's a node here. What about the open end? An anti-node. And so, let me just sort of uh, draw this as sort of straight pipe closed at one end and open at the other. And let's draw the waveform of the fundamental. The longest wavelength or lowest frequency that fits in this pipe with these conditions. So, it has to have zero amplitude here and a maximum there. So if we draw a sine wave, it starts at zero. It goes to a maximum. Now we can draw the inverse of that as well. That distance is one quarter of a wavelength, going from zero to a maximum. You have to go back to zero, and then to the opposite value, and back to zero to get one full wavelength. So this length, quarter wavelength, and if this pipe is such that fundamental wavelength is one meter long. So lambda is one meter. It's saying L is 250 millimeters. Something like this. Okay, so that might be, for example, the, uh, the trachea of a child. So this instrument is probably going to produce sounds that are a pitch comparable to what a child's voice would be at. Of course, it could be something not so biological. It could be an instrument like this that I can close at one end and open at the other and produce a particular frequency as a function of the length. So I can change the length, I can change the frequency. So, um, what is the question? So, what is the frequency produced in the air? 
Okay, so if this tube is filled with air, then I can use this relationship here to find the frequency. And I said that in air at room temperature and pressure, speed of sound is 344 meters per second. The wavelength is one meter long. And the tube was 250 millimeters long. The wavelength is one meter. So if the wavelength is one meter long, of course that frequency is going to be 344 meters cancel. That is units of one over seconds. What do we call that? Seconds. Yeah. 344 hertz. Okay, so 440 was middle C. So that's a bit below that. Okay. Yeah. That is given in the problem. Okay, now if we remove the air and instead we replace it with helium, what changes is just the speed, right? So instead of 344, we have something about 1,000 meters per second. And as a result, in helium we get 1,000 hertz. It's a frequency that's about three times higher. So the pitch increases. Okay, so that's a little bit about how sound is generated, um, transmitted. Let's talk a little bit about how it's perceived, how we hear it, and uh, the units and the scale that we use to quantify how loud something is. So it's helpful to start by sort of listing a range of things at different volume levels that cover the whole um, gamut of what we can hear. So the bottom here will write the threshold appearance, the, the faintest sound that we can hear. And the top will put a military jet 30 meters away. So that's very loud. Uh, of course, we could get closer to it and be louder, but uh, that's sort of as loud as we could go without maybe permanent hearing damage. So in between those, there's what's called the threshold of pain, it's the point where it hurts. There's a sound of construction, Elevated train, busy street traffic, ordinary conversation, a quiet automobile, quiet radio in the home, a whisper, <coughs> getting quieter and quieter and quieter. And if we were able to record how much power our ears receive from these different things, that's one way to define how loud they are. So if we recorded how, how, how much power our ears receive, of course it depends on how big our ears are. If you have a larger receiver, you'll observe more power. So we measure power in units of watts per meter squared. So power per unit area, we call that intensity. That's how intense the sound is. Intensity is always some sort of power per unit area. You'll encounter this when you do optics as well. I'll talk about the intensity of light uh, or electromagnetic radiation. It's the power in a wave divided by the area the receiver. Okay, so um, if you actually do that, measure these things, you get a huge range that goes all the way from 100 to 1 trillion. And so it's useful to write these numbers in scientific notation 
10 to the 2, 1, 10 to the minus 3, 10 to the minus 5, 10 to the minus 6, 10 to the minus 7, 8, 10, 11, 12. So if we think of this range as sort of being a range where um, the, the different levels of our hearing uh, is broken up into sort of equally spaced distances, and what we can see is measuring the power in a sound, um, we have to look at the exponent in order to separate these in sort of equally spaced intervals of levels. Another way of saying that is with the logarithm of the intensity to produce a what we perceive as a linear range in the loudness. Okay, and so what we do is we have this uh, this parameter called the sound level, which describes in a more meaningful and convenient scale for humans, how loud different sounds are. And it's based on the intensity that the sound produces. If you rank these numbers from 0 to 140, then what we have is uh, this number here is 0 when our exponent is minus 12. When our exponent increases by 1, it goes up to 10. If it goes up to 20, the exponent has increased by 2. So what we're doing is we're taking the exponent here, we're adding 12 to it, and then we're multiplying by 10. Right, so the loudest sound you can hear is 100 watts per meter squared. That's 10 to the 2. We're adding 12 to that exponent to get us 14. We're multiplying that by 10 to get 140. This is threshold of being one watt per meter squared. We'll talk about that uh, next week. So just hold on to that thought until then. Okay. okay, so writing this out mathematically, beta, which is the sound level, is equal to 10 times the log. The log just takes the exponent on the number takes the exponent of the intensity, and we want to add 12 to that exponent. So the way of doing that is we divide by 10 to the minus 12 watts per meter squared. This is the faintest sound we can hear. That was the threshold of hearing. So this term in parentheses is how much louder than the, the threshold of hearing a sound is. How many times louder, however many times louder, we're taking that exponent and multiplying it by 10. So we have a sound that's 20 times louder, or let's see, we have a sound that's 100 times louder than the threshold of hearing, that's 10 to the 2. We're taking that exponent, which is 2, multiplying by 10, saying the sound level is 20. Okay. Because of, let me remind you, the property of logarithms, log of A over B, log of A minus log of B. Likewise, log of AB is a log A plus log B. And so, 
factor of x increase in this quantity doesn't uh, doesn't increase the sound level by a factor. It increases it by the logarithm of x, by 10 times the logarithm of x. So it converts from a multiplicative uh, form into an additive form. And it just maps the range of sounds that we can hear more uniformly into a number that we can represent them by. Uh, let me write out a table of some logarithms that are useful to know. And my expectation is that you can generate this table. You can generate this table. We have calculators. Right? You can calculate it. But, uh, some that are easy to generate. What is the logarithm of 1? logarithm of 10. 1. Right? So 10 is 10 to the 1. 1 is equal to 10 to the 0. So the logarithm is that next one. Uh, what about 0.3. Well, let me see if I can show you that because it's not as obvious. Well, I have to let my calculator load. If I type in Two, and then I type in log base ten. I'll get about point three. There we go. Very close to point three. And so we can we approximate that by zero point three. If you use these values, you can construct just about any. Any number of x you can find the log of. So what about 20? relationships? 
you can work out the logarithm for just about any number. That said, you'll have calculators. Right? So that may not be so, <coughs> so relevant. But let's do a problem. Say you hear a sound that is measured as 60 dB. How much less intense is that than a sound that is 80 dB? So we're given values as sound levels, decibels, and we're asked about their intensity. So we're going to have to convert between sound level and intensity. So it'll be useful to recall that relationship. relationship. Um, one sound is 6 dB, the other is 80 dB. So if I'm asked how much less intense it is, let's say 80 dB sound, right, it is 80 dB is equal to 10 dB times log of Call this i sub 80, 10 to the minus 12 watts per meter squared. A 60 dB sound is 10 dB log by 60, 10 to the minus 12 watts per meter squared. So what I can do is I can subtract these. I can say that 20 dB is the difference equals, now I subtract the right sides. this relationship that log of A minus log B is log A over log, over B. Right, so when I take this quantity divided by this quantity, they both have a 10 to the minus 12 watts per meter squared in the denominator. So that's going to cancel out. And I get I80 over I60. So I can now solve this, right? I can divide both sides by 10 dB. I get 2. It says 2 equals log of this ratio. Now I can take an raised, take 10 to the left side, 10 to the 2, equals 10 to the right side. So 10 to the 
mod to some quantity is just that quantity. And to the two, I'll write that as 100 now. How much less intense is a 60 dB sound? So the 60 dB sound, I can say, is 1 100th the intensity of the 80 dB sound. divided by 10 to the minus 12 watts per meter squared. That's a minus 12, and that's a minus 12. You see what happened in this. Um, it didn't matter that both of these intensities were referenced to some threshold. What mattered was the 80 dB sound is 20 dB louder. 20 dB louder means 100 times more intense. What if it were 9 dB louder? A sound that's 9 dB louder is how many more times intense? It's 9, 9 dB louder. It's 8 times more intense. The log of 8 Nine, multiply by ten, get nine. Any questions? Okay, then uh, we have an activity to do. Probably know what these are. So I need a volunteer to. Uh, collect these surveys. Okay, Jana. Um, let me just assign my name on this. Found a volunteer. And then uh, please take the time to fill out the survey. This is uh, important for our review process. Keep in mind that you are reviewing my teaching, not that of Dr. South, who's filling in for me. And uh, when you're, please take the time to finish that. Uh, don't leave before you have. But once you have, um, turn them into the envelope, and you can you can leave after that. And Adriana, you have a little uh, thing you're supposed to read to the class here before you leave. Yes, question. Error. Unable to get Twitter status. Um,